0: Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. LSE for this hybrid event. I'm Lucinda Platt. I'm Professor of Social Policy here in the Social Policy Department at LSE, and I'm delighted to welcome tonight uh, Professor Anne Oakley, uh, Professor Chris Rennick, Professor Sally Sheard, and Professor John Stewart, both to our online audience and to our in-person audience here in the Hong Kong Theatre. This evening. So, just by way of introduction of our very um, eminent speakers, Anne Oakley is Professor of Sociology and Social Policy at the UCL Social Research Institute. A social researcher for more than 50 years and author of numerous academic publications, she is also well known for her biography, autobiography, and fiction. Chris Rennick is a historian of Britain since the early 19th century. He works mainly on the history of the social sciences and the welfare state. His work on these subjects has received international and interdisciplinary recognition. He is a Professor of Modern History at the University of York. Sally Sheard is Executive Dean of the Institute of Population Health at the University of Liverpool, where she also holds the Andrew Geddes and John Rankin Chair of Modern History. She's a health policy analyst and historian with a research focus on the interface between expert advisers and policymakers. Sally collaborates with local authorities and NHS trusts and has written for and appeared in numerous television and radio programmes. John Stewart was professor of the history of healthcare at Glasgow. He's now um, at Glasgow Caledonian University is now emeritus. His research and publications have focused on the history of health and social welfare in modern Britain. John Stewart's most recent book is Richard Titmuss, A Commitment to Welfare, which was winner of the 2021 British Academy Peter Townsend Award. Richard Titmuss is the first chair in social administration at the London School of Economics and Political Science. He died 50 years ago in 1973. From his appointment in 1950 until his death, Titmuss established and defined the field of social policy. This event will discuss Titmuss' critique of the welfare state and how his insights have had to evolve in the light of the challenges to and strategies for social welfare which have come to predominate since his death. This event brings together authors of published and planned biographies of Richard Titmuss, Brian Abel Smith and Peter Townsend alongside Titmuss's daughter Anne Oakley. Each speaker will speak for 10 to 15 minutes John Stewart will be speaking about Richard Titmus, and Sally Sheard will be speaking about Brian Abel Smith, Chris Rennick will speak about Peter Townsend, and then Anne Oakley will give her observations and overview. We will then open up to Q&A. Um, and at the end, there will be a book signing and books are on sale in the lobby outside. For those Twitter users, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LCHealth. The event is being recorded and will be made available as a podcast subject to no technical difficulties. As usual, there will be the chance for you to put your questions to all of the speakers after they have spoken, both our online audience and our in-person audience. I'll try to ensure a range of questions from both the online and in-person audience here in the theatre. But now I'm delighted to hand over to John Stewart
1: for our first talk. Well, thank you, Linda. Okay, um, my, uh, the impertinent question with which my uh, talk kind of uh, labours under is 50 years on, who remembers Richard Titness? And the talk's going to be in three sections. Uh, first of all, Titness uh, in recent non academic di- discourse. Second, indicators of his continuing social policy relevance. Uh, and third, instances of his employment and contemporary moral and political philosophy. Not all of those cited support Titmuss' arguments, uh, far from it, but what's significant, I think, is that they still uh, engage with his ideas. This complements Titmuss' central ambition that the academic field he did so much to create, social policy, be seen as relevant to uh, contemporary policy, uh, political uh, and social debates. And this in part explains the titmus paradigm, which we can talk about later if you want, uh, which dominated the field uh, until at least the 1970s. The examples I'll cite come from the last 25 years, so should be seen in in the context of neoliberalism's present ideological dominance. Titmus is thus employed in current disputes uh, about the market's role uh, in more than just economic affairs, uh, notwithstanding that all his own work uh, was produced during, during the era of the post-war social democratic consensus to which he notably contributed. And there's uh, round up the usual suspects. Uh, this is the Titmuss department in, 19, I think it's about 1970, Titmuss centre stage there with Brian Abel Smith to his uh, immediate right and I'm sure some of you will recognise uh, some of the other people there. First, then, four examples of Titmuss and non-academic discourse. In 2002, the Labour leader of the recently founded Welsh Assembly, Rodri Morgan, claimed that his policy agenda clearly owed more to the traditions of Titmuss, Tony Beveridge, and Bevan than those of Hayek and Friedman. There was clear red water between the former's progressivism uh, and the latter's neoliberalism. A decade later, During a debate in the Scottish Parliament on blood transfusion, members were urged to, quote, remember the words of the great social scientist Richard Titmuss to the effect that transfusion should be seen in the context of, again to quote, the National Health Service's origins, development, uh, and values, and thereby the encouragement of a sense of social responsibility. Uh, This was a reference to uh, Titmuss' The Gift Relationship Uh, And my third example takes a rather different view uh, of this work, and I owe this reference to to Anne Oakley. In 2018, the Economist claimed that blockages in the market for blood products were attributable to the stigma dating back to the gift relationship on paying for blood donations. The Economist was never sympathetic to the Titmuss agenda, uh, but here is a reminder that the latter's critics still see the need to challenge it. By contrast, in 2017, the new statesman observed of the Grenfell Tragedy that this had occurred in one of the world's richest cities. However, it continued, as the pioneering social researcher Richard Titmuss knew, services for the poor uh, become poor services. This alludes to Titness's long-standing argument that the post-war welfare state had failed to address what became one of his major preoccupations the persistence of inequalities. Turning to the field of social policy, our colleague Martin Powell shows that in terms of literature citations, Esping uh, Anderson is a clear leader, uh, but that Titmuss and Peter Townsend are comfortably in the top five. Among the key words the scholars still reference uh, is the gift relationship, of which more presently, uh, and the social division of welfare, Uh, the divisions being being state, occupational and fiscal welfare. Uh, This continues to be an important analytical resource uh, for scholars such as Adrian Sinfield, who, in an essay in 2020 on fiscal welfare, uh, began and ended with Titnus, who, as early as the mid-1950s, had challenged the conventional wisdom that redistribution was confined to the welfare state. Uh, It remained the case, though, That ongoing policy neglect, Adrian continues, uh, in this area was, in Titnus' phrase, nurturing privilege. Around the same time, uh, another piece noted that Titnus' seminal and original analysis of welfare provision, this is in the article by Natalie et al., and sought to build on his insights. Its title, 60 Years After Titnus, further reminds us that he, Titnus, first fully articulated his ideas in a 1955 lecture. So they have an extraordinarily long uh, and productive shelf weapon. I think, Lucinda, you've written in this kind of area as well. Moving on to my third theme, though, how have moral and political philosophers recently engaged with Richard Titness? Uh, most of my subsequent references come from scholars uh, in those fields. This, the, the whole idea of Titmuss as a philosopher is actually quite a fraught one, but certainly his publishers thought he was a philosopher, as you can see from these uh, book covers. Richard Titmuss and his social philosophy, and then the selected writings of Richard Titmuss on the philosophy of welfare. To begin with, we have a standard text on, as the title indicates, Economic Analysis, Moral Philosophy and Public Policy. Its authors suggest that Titmuss, in the gift relationship, argued that paying individuals for carrying out certain actions undermines their sense of civic duty. Altruism, one of Titus's great concerns, uh, is thus crowded out. Furthermore, Timm claimed that market utilization led to inferior supplies of blood and efficiency loss. Uh, the latter point is made in this text in an exercise in the section entitled, How Could Ethics Matter to Economics? In short, market-based blood acquisition by Titnus' account was economically inefficient uh, and morally corrosive. Leading on from that, I'm going to expand briefly on what is possibly Titnus' most famous work, uh, The Gift Relationship, uh, since its publication in 1970, uh, which has inspired comment on both uh, the pros and cons of voluntary blood donation, and on issues beyond the, uh, the book's own original subject matter. The gift relationship was a product of a decade-long acrimonious dispute between Titmuss uh, and the Institute uh, of Economic Affairs over the market's role in health care. It thus appeared, uh, to emphasise an earlier point, uh, during the era of the post-war social democratic consensus, although by this time it was that that consensus was looking uh, increasingly fragile. The philosopher Michael Sandel uh, is a well-known admirer of the gift relationship, arguing uh, in Titnus' classic study of blood donation uh, that it illustrated how markets might crowd out non-market norms. Sandel addressed certain criticisms of Titnus, notably those of uh, Kenneth Arrow. Uh, again, the, all these references are going to be in a blog I'm producing at some point in the future for LSE, so uh, don't feel the urge to write them all down. Uh, but Kenneth Arrow was a, an early critic of Titnus, and, and a very important one in a lot of ways. Sandel concluded that, nonetheless, it was now necessary to, quote, take sides in a long-standing debate uh, in moral and political philosophy. If economics was to help, uh, help us decide where markets serve the public good and where they don't belong, it should relinquish its claim to be a value-neutral science and reconnect with its origins uh, in moral and political philosophy. Another example of this kind of uh, critique is given by the philosopher David Archer, who defended the gift relationship against what he called orthodox uh, philosophical criticism. Yeah, another example is, is a woman called Natalie Gold, who identifies what she calls Titmuss' puzzle, namely how to reconcile commodification and the crowding out effect with any particular goods intrinsic value. Now, this is an ongoing issue with real-life consequences, uh, and with Titmuss still a key reference point, is illustrated by a 2015 edition of the journal HEC Forum on, uh, in its own words, the ethics of compensating the donors of blood and blood products. This addressed the World Health Organization's position that nations should, ideally, be self-sufficient in blood supplies, and that these should be acquired, on the grounds of efficiency and safety from unpaid donors. And nine out of the ten articles in this uh, journal uh, cite the gift relationship to varying effect. So, for example, the medical sciences Perno and Ferugia claim that many global and national systems of regulation of blood donors and donor compensation rely for intellectual support on Titnus' work. However, the Titness World worldview has, by their account, been undermined by evidence from, for example, evolutionary psychology. Another contributor to this particular edition of the journal was Jeremy Shearmoor, a philosopher who extensively critiqued uh, Titmuss's arguments. In this particular piece, he acknowledges the gift relationship's iconic position in the critical literature on the paid provision of blood. Nonetheless, he continues, there seemed to be no good basis for rejecting the supply of whole blood for money, let alone the supply of blood plasma. Uh, this is a debate that just goes on and on, actually, if you look at the philosophical journals. And the gift relationship, therefore, continues uh, to inform debates about blood supplies. But it's also referenced in other fields, both around health care and, more broadly, in ways that Titus himself might not have anticipated. For instance, Deborah Satz uses Titness's famous study, as she puts it, as a template for examining how best to acquire human kidneys for transplantation. One issue Satz raises is the moral implications of purchasing organs from donors in developing countries. And of course, one of Titness's claims ha- had been that market based blood acquisition exploited the disadvantaged. Sheermer again, responding to an article on the gift relationship and transplant commercialism rejects an uh, extremely unhappy phrase, it seems to me, a Titmussian approach to organs. In a rather different field, political scientist Javi Hidalgo, defending the sale of citizenship, argues that while Titmuss may have shown that selling blood crowds out altruistic norms, it had not been shown that this would be the case with citizenship. And the fact that somebody is using Titnus' arguments to discuss a completely different topic, as it were, shows us that people interested in social and political and moral philosophy are interested in what he does. And that that Titnus' arguments have been used more broadly and more explicitly in political terms. Historically, this has been noted through, for example, uh, Madeline Davis's claim that social scientists such as Titnus and Peter Townsend Uh, had an impact on the New Left in the 1960s, and thereby on something uh, she defines as socialist humanism. That Titmuss continues to have something to say about social democracy and one of its defining constituents, uh, the welfare state, uh, is a recurring theme. David Miller proposes that perhaps the most famous defense of the welfare state as embodying an idea of community manifested by altruistic concern with the needs of unknown strangers is to be found in the gift relationship. And this idea of need is examined uh, by John O'Neill, who suggests that during the 20th century, this, the idea of need, remains central to the mutualist form of socialism defended by Tony and Titnus, uh, and underlay the development and justification uh, of the modern welfare state. And he saw this as exemplified, of course, by the National Health Service. Not least in the case of Titmuss, he concluded, the needs principle uh, underpins the demand for equality and thereby the creation of form of community wherein, again to quote O'Neill, certain forms of power, exploitation and humiliation are eliminated uh, and solidarity and fellowship fostered. And just to conclude, just to mention, I think in passing Michael Friedan, uh, who has in fact written a lot uh, about Titmuss, but he argues in one case, that Titmuss's contribution uh, to British social democratic thought uh, has not been adequately recognised, uh, and he uh, gives a few examples of why he thinks this is so. The idea of Titmuss as a neglected contributor to social democratic thought merits further attention, I think, especially uh, in the light of observations about how we conceptualize the welfare state, uh, something, of course, which uh, is currently under scrutiny, to say the least. So in the final slide, I've identified some of Titmuss' ideas and concerns which commentators have seen as still having traction uh, in the 21st century, and which might lead us to revisit, reassess, and even actively promote the Titmus paradigm. So thank you for listening to that.
0: Thank you very much. So Sally,
2: please. Good evening. It's a pleasure to be here and to see some familiar faces in the audience. I'm talking about Brian Abel-Smith and his relationship with Richard Titmus and how I think Brian... Abel Smith interpreted the legacy after Titmys' death in 1973. So Brian Abel Smith was one of the titmice, Uh, not a term that they particularly enjoyed. They were also known as Labour Party's skiffle group. Um, And the three of them, with Peter Townsend, formed a very important, uh, special relationship for, for many years, I wanted to begin by talking though about what motivates us to write these biographies because I think this is important that we're coming at this objectively, if you can, as a biographer, but also as three historians. Um, We all had different motivations for taking this on. Um, In my case, I was invited by LSE to write Brian's biography and I was the first one of the three to get going. And and I, I immediately said no when Walter Holland contacted me and I said oh, I'm not I'm not a biographer I'm a historian you know I haven't got the skills why do you think I could do it and he said well you've written 15 mini biographies of chief medical officers I'm sure you can manage you know this chap I said well I'll come I'll come to LSE and I'll have a look at his papers and I was fairly sure that I would be saying no again And then, in a box of draft Labour Party manifestos, and I deliberately chose what I thought would be the most unattractive boxes in Brian's archive to look at, uh, I found this, which was a copy of a magazine called House Beautiful. It's the September 1956 edition, and it is for the younger homemaker. And the picture on the right is Brian leaning through a hatch from his kitchen serving 2 Natalie naturally-dressed ladies. The one in the white shirt is Sue Holman, who was the daughter of Vivian Leigh. And this was Brian, Uh, in a way I never expected to see him, in glorious technicolor. And there are other, I haven't put them all in, there are amazing pictures of how he lived in London in this flat in 1956. I thought, hang on a minute, this is actually a really interesting person. So then I thought, now I have to convince myself to delve into an individual's personal life. How do I do that? And I thought, well, I can do it by saying that I'm using Brian as a lens through which I'm going to write a 50 plus year history of the development of health and social welfare policy on a global scale. Because I'd read his obits and I knew that that was the type of impact he hoped he had achieved. So that was my route into this book. So when did he meet Titmus? Well he became aware of Titmus in 1952 when he was at Cambridge as an undergraduate and his good close friend John Vasey gave him a copy of Problems of Social Policy and he read it and he thought this is a chap that I really want to work with. Over the years he had various associations Ways in which he was described, his relationship with Titmus was described in different ways. He was known as Titmus's earthly representative after Titmus died, his anointed successor. And when Titmus went to the LSE in 1950, he had always had around him an inner circle of male colleagues. And he had a flair for selecting these brilliant individuals. Abel Smith was the one who started the joke of calling Titmus God and the junior academics in the department were known as the disciples. It gives you a sense of that very close relationship. So Abel Smith came to socialism by conviction, whereas Titmus came to socialism, one could say, by some experience, although possibly not as much as some of his obituaries suggest. But when they got together finally in 1953... Britain was very much a snobbish and regimented society. Titmuss and Brian Abel Smith both, I think, could be seen as having uncomfortable feelings about their social classes. Brian Abel Smith was the spare, his elder brother was the heir, to a very considerable family fortune. The Abel Smiths are landed gentry, uh, one of the oldest banking families alongside the Rothschilds. Um, Brian was public school educated one of his cousins was the Queen Mother um, he was a very successful entrepreneur he set up a clothing chain called Just Men in 1965 that had multiple branches a very unlikely friendship you would imagine then with Richard Titmuss but they worked together increasingly closely Um, firstly from 1953, and this was the working title for the book for many years. The publishers vetoed it. I think it would have been quite good, although i would have been in some copyright trouble. So they first worked together, 1953, on the Gillibode Inquiry into the costs of the National Health Service. This had been set up by the Conservative government, really to refute the idea that the NHS was too expensive. Um, they actually hoped that there would be evidence to find it was too inexpensive and that there would be good reasons to dismantle it so soon after it had been created in 1948. What Brian found, and he was the lead researcher on this, was that it was actually very good value for money and had been underfunded. And as a result of that, the NHS got the, the further impetus that it needed. Titmus was impressed by Abel Smith to the extent that he created a lectureship for him here at LSE and he moved into that lectureship in 1955. His reasoning for doing, doing that was complex. He really wanted to be a politician, but as a gay man in 1955, that was a risk too far it would have exposed not only himself, but also his very establishment family to a degree of risk and and possible scrutiny. It wasn't one he was prepared to take. So he decided instead he was going to be a, a politician monkey. He would work with politicians from an academic power base. And you can see here on this simplified chart quite how he overlapped various strands to his career working both as an academic, but also as an advisor. So he was one of the first SPADs, the first special advisors, working with Crossman, Barbara Castle, David Ennels, Peter Shaw. And then this very long bar along the bottom, which you may not be able to see at the back, um, the consultant, and he was a consultant to World Health Organization, International Labour Organization, UNDP, World Bank, right from 1956 through to when he died in 1996 it was the most phenomenal period of sustained activity in policy formation on a global level coming back though to lse and to these key relationships from 1956 when peter townsend arrived at lse and david donison had come in 1955 as well another key individual in this story Um, They worked incredibly well together, publishing pamphlets, short Fabian pamphlets. That was the first one that Brian and Richard worked on together, arguing very much in Titmuss mode that pension contributions should be income-based, not flat rate. They were noted by Richard Crossman and increasingly given opportunities to work with the Labour Party to develop policy, not only on pensions, but on a whole range of benefits. And Brian had a very deliberate strategy. When he decided he would not go for the overt political career, he picked up a number of roles. He actively went out and sought things, working within NHS hospitals on hospital boards, um, joining uh, influential government committees, such as the Cohen Committee on Prescribing, and working with a number of, of politicians, mainly Labour, although he did also give advice to Conservative politicians. The other key thing I think that Brian did was that he tutored Titmus in basic economics. Titmus was aware that he didn't have this in his skill set And it was vital to the way in which they positioned their work through the 1950s and the 1960s. They also very much thought in terms of systems, probably, I think, Brian more than Titmuss. um, Brian's view was that you should be able to look at whole systems, particularly health systems. Health was his passion. And from 1957, he did a number of studies when he worked for the WHO, (laughs) really looking at the costs and sources of finance in a way that hadn't been done before. He was one of the pioneers of national health accounting. It opened up a very different way of looking at what you could afford as a country for healthcare. But one of the most impactful collaborations that he had with Titmus, I think, was the one in Mauritius from 1959. They had been commissioned by the newly independent country to provide a report on how they could completely set up from scratch a new health and social welfare system. It was a comprehensive approach. The people that you see here in the picture, and I'm sorry, it's a very fuzzy one, Titmus is there on the far right. Next to him is Abel Smith, and the, the, the shorter chap standing with the shorter trousers is Tony Lines, who was another key member of the, the Titmus team in the 1950s and 1960s and they're talking to some of the Boy Scouts who they uh, collaborated with while they were working in Mauritius. So Mauritius was the first of a whole series of country-based studies. After that, they went on to do one in Tanganyika, 1961 to 62. They were enormously influential. They were able to go in. I think it would be an interesting exercise to actually go back and reconsider now in the light of decolonizing um, our research quite how they were interacting with the Mauritian government, but they certainly had an impact at the time in what they were proposing to them. During the 60s, when Titmuss had intermittent periods of ill health, it was Brian and David Donison who effectively ran the Department of Social Administration here at LSE. And when Peter Townsend arrived, it was... Brian, who he chose to work with most intensively on the poverty studies. But they were very much a triumvirate. They worked very closely together. If you look at the correspondence between them, it's fascinating. They were in daily contact with Titmuss. If he was out of the country, they would write to him almost daily. And they both signed off their letters to Titmuss, lots of love. You know, I think that's a quite Bizarre for, t- for a group of three men writing to one another in the 1960s, but it gives you a great sense of, of how they worked together. I think the split begins to become apparent, though, in 1968, in terms of their philosophy, their approach to what they were attempting to achieve. They had been enormously successful with the Labour Party, but Brian could understand that there were other routes to have influence and he was invited in 1968 to become Dick Crossman's special advisor, and the quote here, I think, says it all. Um, He's been my closest personal friend, without whom I could have done very little in the past two years. Why do I say this is the start of the split? Um, And I think Chris will probably talk about the split with with Peter Townsend, but for Brian, it was very much... It was a tension. If he was going to take time out from LSE, time away from Titmus to work with Crossman, he was not giving his full attention in perhaps the way Titmuss expected. And he did it not only with Crossman, he later went on to become a special advisor with Barbara Castle, and I love this quote. It shows you how special advisors were seen at one point. They were very much valued for their academic expertise. Um, They had different types of special advisors. We could just debate later whether we still do have academic expertise in the special advisers that we have working for government today. But they were enormously influential, and that was what Brian was trying to achieve. These two pages that come, I think, uh, it's the Daily Mail, 1974, who really runs Britain now? You rarely see them, some have more influence than civil servants paid more than ministers. And the next page down, this comes from Brian's archive. He cut it out and he asterisked his own entry in red. Here they are, the backroom junta, and it's quite a set of influential names there. Brian, I think, was as devastated as Anne and Titmus's wife Kay were when he died in nineteen seventy three. Um, it took him a long time to adjust. Did he become the flag bearer for <coughs> Titmus? Was he Tittness's, um earthly representative? I think there are lots of ways in which you can look at this. You can look at what he chose to work on. He certainly became much more flexible in his approach to policy solutions for healthcare. He entertained the idea of user fees, privatisation, choice of supplier, I'm not sure that Titmus would have been able to do um, quite that much bending in his philosophy. Uh, this is the, the final picture that I could find of the two of them together. Um, they both had travelled a long way since they did the cost of the National Health Service report in 1956 and Brian went on to be influential in more than 50 countries worldwide. A very different approach I think to Titmus's. He also inherited Titmus's desk, and Titmus had had the desk from um, a succession of people. Originally, Beatrice Webb. I think for me that really speaks volumes. They were both <coughs> absolutely passionate about social justice and social welfare. It underpinned everything that they did. So I'm going to call a halt now, and I'm going to hand over, I think, to Chris. Thank
0: you very much.
3: Okay, thank you. I guess I should probably begin too in saying how it was that I uh, uh, came to, to be writing the uh, biography of Pete Townsend. Um, I was sat in my office one day in, uh, I think it was February 2020, very different times, and I received a phone call. And it was one of Sally's postdocs, Michael Lambert, uh, who phoned me up and said, Chris, I've been sent to have a chat with you. And uh, we we talked through and he mentioned there was this project and um, Pete Townsend was someone who I was aware of for a variety of reasons and we'll we'll come to those. And like Sally, I I did the same thing, which was to go and investigate and really try and find out a bit more about about this guy and and see whether this was someone that I wanted to spend uh, a number of years working on. The more that I looked at him, the more interesting that I found him he 's someone who uh, he was born in the late 1920s in Middlesbrough, spent the first few years of his life there, uh, and his dad left the family home when he was very young, and his mum was a music hall singer and he had uh, a background in the 1930s he moved to, uh, to London um, to be looked after by his grandparents, which is something that we might consider as we'll see to be quite important when it comes to thinking about what he then went on to work on and he was a scholarship boy, uh, made his way to Cambridge, and after national service, he went on to have a quite you know, fascinating career, and I thought that this is someone that I could really spend some time working on. Um, and one of the things that I found most interesting about him was that he was an academic social scientist, um, but he was also a campaigner. And the relationship between academic social science and campaigning is something i think is completely inseparable when it comes to understanding peter townsend uh, and it is maybe one of those things about uh, well, not just about peter townsend but about um, social policy or social administration and the titmus paradigm that i think is worth um, thinking about so after cambridge he he first worked for a think tank known as political and economic planning he worked there on poverty he then moved from there to go and work for the Institute for Community Studies which had been set up by Michael Young uh, who'd written the Labour Party's 1945 general election manifesto uh, and went on to have uh, an equally varied uh, career of his own. And then after working at the Institute for Community Studies he came to the LSE and probably the thing that marks Peter Townsend out uh, amongst the, uh, the chipmice and the relationship that we've heard about before is that he left. Uh, after six, uh, six and a bit years. And he went to the University of Essex, uh, which didn't actually exist when he took the job, to become the first professor of sociology uh, at the University of Essex. And he, he built that department up there. Uh, it was one of the, I think he was the second professor that they appointed. And he stayed for almost 20 years uh, before, um, for personal reasons, going to um, the University of Bristol. Uh, and then in retirement, he comes back to the LSE uh, as a visiting professor. And uh, one of those things about rifling through the archives is that you, you can kind of um, discover um, precisely how long academics can hold grudges for. Because when he comes back in the 1990s, I found a letter uh, from one academic objecting to the appointment of Peter Townsend as a visiting honorary professor uh, because he hadn't really done enough during his career to merit being appointed to such a position at the LSE. So uh, almost 30 years later. So what is it that we might point to as being the things that, that, that were... Uh, most important about about his career. Uh, Well, he was a pioneer of the scientific study of old age. He wrote a book called Family Life of Old People at the Institute for Community Studies, uh, which was part of a general movement in social science at the time, uh, as part of trying to understand normal life rather than uh, what we might think as pathologies in social life. Uh, and it was when he moved to the LSE that he wrote a book called The Last Refuge, which was about lives of old people in institutions, which a number of people who I've spoken to who are friends and colleagues of him talk about this book as being having a quite you know, emotional impact on them, the kind of pictures that, that he uh, was able to um, pose of institutional life in the country. He was the pioneer of the sociological study of um, what he referred to at the time as social minorities, He um, particularly of the disabled, and. Uh, From the middle of the career onwards, um, he moved particularly into the study of health inequalities and um, was particularly um, prominent in putting these things into the public sphere through the Black Report. Um, But it's really his work on measuring and conceptualising poverty um, that most people will know him and will know him now and that he would have been most famous for at the time. the Poor and the Poorest, published in 1965, is associated with the rediscovery of poverty in 1960s Britain. It's the thing that most people will associate with putting his mark kind of publicly. But there's later the study Poverty in the UK, published in 1979, but that's many, many years after the work was actually done. It was, it was supposed to be a follow-on from Poor and the Poorest. Uh, he worked with abel smith but for a variety of reasons brian didn't quite make it through to the end of the study and this is part of if we kind of think about what is it that the the, the titmus paradigm originally does it's about shattering the confidence the post-war confidence in the welfare state and what it was that it achieved these kind of ideas like consensus that we see with post-war politics Um, and specifically the idea that poverty had been eliminated uh, by the welfare state but Uh, It has a range of other impacts too. Uh, I once listened to John Hills um, say that if you were to write an impact case study for the poor and the poorest, it would be the greatest impact case study that had ever been written. It shatters all these kinds of ideas, but it also makes things like secondary analysis of data a standard part of uh, social scientific practice uh, in in this country. Uh, It changes the way that poverty is measured, or I guess the way that both of them would have put it in the 1960s. It leads to admission of the way in which poverty actually is measured rather than necessarily changing it. And what Townsend does throughout the rest of his career is he kind of takes on that gauntlet of kind of revising and reinventing the way that poverty is measured uh, all the way through to the the influential um, Townsend index of deprivation. He's also an incredibly important institutional figure, which I think is something that that we can't really rule out. Um, As I said, he joined Essex when it was really just words on a page. Uh, There there was nothing in Colchester um, approximating a university and the first few years that he was there, uh, having taken the job, having been sneaking out during his lunch breaks here to meet with Albert Sloan, the first Vice-Chancellor at Essex, He was kind of teaching in huts in a muddy field as the university was being built around him. Um, It was just a handful of students being enrolled in the first instance. And though he didn't necessarily admit this in correspondence, the reason that he went there was that uh, Essex was originally supposed to be the rival to the LSE. In this country as a social science institution that's that was the purpose for social scientists there and it's one of this kind of tranche of new universities which we kind of wrongly think of as being robbins universities they're 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 devised before the robbins report is published um, and it's in this mo- what mike savage calls the moment of sociology in this country and and townsend has an incredibly important institutional position at a moment that, that, that what's being figured out in the universities is exactly what sociology is and and when he's there he creates this incredibly broad department he goes there with the intention of not recreating the department of social administration at the lse he wants to create something much much broader social administration is part of it and There there are all kinds of people that go there, quantitative and qualitative sociologists, uh, people who who study sexuality and things like that. It's a much broader department, and we see uh, one way in which we might see him as recreating um, his experience here is the kind of gathering of a a group of people who identify with him, Uh, uh, people like Alan Walker, Adrian Simfield, uh, Dennis Marsden, John Viet wilson these these kinds of people. As I said, though, he was also a campaigner. The most prominent of his roles was with the Child Poverty Action Group, which was the body that he helped uh, found. It comes off the back of The Poor and the Poorest in 1965, uh, an effort to try and capitalise on this. Uh, he was the chair of that organisation for 20 years. But he also had roles with organisations like the Disability Alliance and his roles in all of these things were really to try and pressure politicians into acting into what he saw as the findings of social policy social administration research and I think it's worth stressing here that Townsend is a very public figure by the early 1960s he writes a lot for newspapers and for magazines he appears on tv uh, there are great stories in the papers of him being whisked away from meetings of the british sociological association to go and talk on local tv about poverty in the local area and he had kind of you know incredible clashes with people like keith joseph the conservative uh, minister and mp on uh, late night current affairs programmes and he uses all of these things to turn the black report into a into a national scandal and one of the things that i've been told by journalists and uh, writer, some of whom I can see in this room, is that he's someone who always picked up the phone and was always happy to talk and give his opinion whether it was something that he was going to be quoted on or not. Now, in this respect, he was also renowned as being a somewhat uncompromising character and someone who was you know, fully plugged into Labour politics. You know, he worked with the Labour Party. We've heard about this with pension reform and various other policies and, and, and things like this. Um, And I've kind of struggled to try to find a way of how it was that he appeared to some people. Uh, And the best thing that I could think of was this entry from Tony Benn's diaries from the late 1960s, where he recounts going to a party at Peter Townsend's house in Hampstead. He he stayed living in in, in London after uh, taking the job at Essex. Uh, And Tony Benn, who was uh, not not quite as far left as he was uh, later in his career, uh, recalls being surrounded by three of his young sociology students who just called me a fascist. And called me it so often I got rather angry. Um, A dull German professor linked me with a lot of other fascists, and when I said to him, could you give me the names of any world politicians who disagree with you but are not fascists? He said, that's a fascist sort of question. (laughs) Peter was, I think, a very nice guy, but he had this kind of uncompromising, um, particularly strong socialist image. So I just wanted to, to, just in the last few minutes, talk really about this idea of the, of the Titmus paradigm and how Townsend related to it. Townsend, as I said, has a particular role in this because he leaves, and he leaves in not uncontroversial circumstances, particularly in terms of his relationship with Titmus, who very much did not want Townsend to go. And when it comes to thinking about the relationship between the person who leaves and and, and the department that they leave behind, there are a couple of ways to think about this, I think. I mean, one involves thinking about how we see it as historians. Um, Another way involves looking at how the historical actors saw it themselves. Uh, And I think when it comes to writing a biography, it's important to weave these things together. Tipperson Townsend had an intense personal relationship, I think. That's certainly what I've picked up from the archives um, and at least for a time, they both saw it as a kind of father son relationship. With Peter having not had a father figure really in his life when he was younger, um, seems to have latched on in the early parts of his career to particularly kind of dominant, influential um, figures who could take on that role. But it is worth pointing out that Townsend had an interest in and worked extensively on poverty before he came to the LSE. He came here to work with Titmus. He describes Titmus as being the surgeon under whom he wishes to work is the phrase that he uses when describing his reasons for coming here. Um, But within time, he comes to be very critical of Titus. And there are a number of reasons for that. I kind of can get on to now, but one of them was that he felt that Titus avoided the truly radical conclusions that should have been derived from his work. So I've reproduced here some extracts from the very long letter that Townsend wrote to uh, Titmus after he made the decision to go. This had been a, a quite drawn-out affair. Um, there had been uh, Townsend had been summoned out to the, to the Titmus residents to, to talk about this. There had been phone calls. Um, and Titmus spent a long time trying to persuade Townsend to stay. Um, now, in explaining why he didn't go, Townsend gave three reasons. Two were that... Well, if he left, it would make Tippus more influential, um, because there would be another institution in which Tippus's ideas would be spread. And also he he kind of suggested, well, uh, isn't it more likely we'll get more research funding across two universities rather than just one, and people thinking that the LSE is the place to go? But the third, which was specific to Townsend, was he thought that he was more of a sociologist than he was a social administration scholar. And that relationship between sociology and social admin is something that I think is, is, is quite important. And finally, I just wanted to reproduce this. Um, I discovered a diary of Townsend's from the very end of his life. And this is in an archive, it's in his uh, surviving wife's possession. And there are entries in this um, where he talks about reading Anne's book, Man and Wife, um, about uh, her father and, and, and her mother. and. He describes himself in this as being changed over his career from being a comprehensive admirer to a disappointed critic of Richard. He says that this is partly to do with the interpretation of democratic socialism, but also of sociology. And so I think the key issue here, and this will be my my, my final point, is that in understanding why it is that Townsend differed with Titmuss and and Abel Smith, and going back to this 1968 moment which was described as being essentialist, that... Townsend could never see himself someone who worked for the government. He saw himself, um, and someone else put it to me, it was the first question that, that, that Brian asked was, what, w- Will the idea work? Whereas Peter's response was, We need to hold people's feet to the fire. And that kind of issue about being a public figure and about sociology and social policy in the, uh, in the public sphere and what is the point of social policy? Uh, is it about being pra- pragmatic and making things work? Or is there a much bigger idea that you should be loyal to? That to me seems to be the key figure that explains the different directions in which these figures go off.
2: Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSEIQ wherever you get your
4: podcasts. Now, back
0: to the event. Now, over to you, Anne.
4: Um, The first thing I want to say is I'd like to thank LSE for arranging um, this event. You know, people lead their lives and they establish their reputations and then they die and then they get remembered in sometimes kind of partial and random ways. My father fought hard for his career. It didn't come easily to him. There were many obstacles along the way. But at the peak of that career, in the 1960s, he was an internationally renowned figure, and he had friends and influence in many countries, as you have heard. No one, since he's died, there's been a lot of scholarly commentary, scholarly in quotation marks, I suspect, uh, about... His legacy, what he said and what it meant. Um, I'm not going to summarize any of that, I haven't got enough time. But no one has disputed that he was an absolute giant in the field. What he did was he created out of a scattered universe of initiatives and concerns and problems a subject that took its place alongside other subjects in a university setting. 50 years ago, when he died of lung cancer in a hospital in West London while trying to smoke yet another cigarette, he wasn't very factual in uh, his approach to cigarette smoking. Did you notice the cigarettes in the pictures of Brian? They were great smokers, they were. They bonded over smoking. So when he died, I lost the only father I had ever had, and the social policy world lost not just one scholar among many, but the person without whose vision, intelligence, and sheer hard work, that world would never be the way it is today. Listening to John, Sally, and Chris talking about the tip mice has been fascinating for me. I'm not here because of my own work, Social welfare really is not my subject. I'm here because I'm Richard Titus' daughter. And what that means is that every account of his work, and that of the people that he was closely associated with, is on some level a story about my childhood, about my own social and intellectual heritage. So when I think about his legacy, I think both about his influence on the theory and practice of social policy I also think about what he bequeathed to me that has changed my own work and I'm going to pick out three um, aspects of that in a minute but first I would like to take you back to my first encounters with my father's work in that house in action which now carries a blue plaque commemorating his existence there So I grew up knowing that my father wrote books. He wrote them in intensely illegible handwriting. His handwriting has been a problem for anyone who's trying to write a story about his life. But he had a secretary as people did in those days who turned his illegible handwriting into a printed manuscript, into a typed manuscript and then it went to the publisher and then it came back as proofs which had to be checked by my father. So he persuaded me, I think from the age of about 10 or 11, or perhaps a little older, he persuaded me to read every word and every punctuation mark in these page proofs out loud so that he could check that the printer had got it right. This was very much a labor of love until it dawned on me that I could ask him to pay me for it. So the gift of my time became a financial transaction transformation about which my father would later write in his most famous book, The Gift Relationship. But what he gave to me was unplanned. He gave me a lasting preoccupation with punctuation marks. As my family know, for their cost, I am obsessed with apostrophes and commas and all of that sort of nonsense. I also knew while growing up in that blue plaque house that people kept coming to dinner, and some of them were very important people, like the Prime Minister of Mauritius, or the politician Richard Crossman, or Baroness Whitten of Aventure, about whom I would later uh, write a biography myself. Today, I'm able to remind myself who came to dinner when, and what they ate, because my mother wrote it all down in little books like this. She wrote down the date, the people who came, and what kind of food she cooked for them. By far the most frequent dinner guests in these little red books are the other titmice, Brown and Peter, and various associated people like Tony Lyons and uh, the economist John Bailey. The latter two left the tick fold later because of various disagreements, uh, as indeed, as Chris said, Peter Townshend also did. But the nature of my father's work was something that a child found it very hard to grasp. What did he actually do when he left the house in Acton every morning, sometimes with odd socks or even once with odd shoes on, thus proving that he could be an absent-minded professor when he wanted to be? What did you do? For a long time, I thought LSE was LSC. Though so I did learn how to spell the word professor a long time before my friends. But what was even then very clear to me was that whatever the people who came to the house were talking about, it must be something terribly exciting because the voices were raised, there was a lot of laughter The conversations were warm and unstoppable. Good things were clearly going on, but I had no idea what they were. So now just to a few comments about what it appears to me to be important about my father's legacy. The first and most important aspect, I think, of Richard Titmuss' approach was his total disregard for traditional disciplinary boundaries. This may be partly to do with the fact that he did not go to university. He had rather little in the way of formal education, but for the field of social policy, it was an enormous asset. So his attitude was you take the issue, you take the problem, the theory or the policy, and you look around you for what might help you to create a useful understanding of this. But the meeting that was held here at LSU 20 years ago to remember his work Howard Glenister picked out as Titmuss' most important intellectual legacy, something Howard called interconnectedness. Philosophy, economics, anthropology, medicine, psychology, biology, these are all drawn on in Titmuss' work. No matter that he sometimes didn't get the references right. It's been pointed out, for example, that he used the terms anomie and alienation interchangeably, which you really shouldn't do, and that he took from the French anthropologist Marcel Mauss' book, The Gift, what he wanted rather than what was actually there. No matter. Richard Titmuss understood that too much of academic life is spent in the high high-bound marking out of disciplinary positions and that none of this is helpful in the real world where difficult policy decisions have got to be made. I think it was this respect for the principle of interconnectedness that led Richard Titmuss to put quotation marks around the term welfare state. Things called welfare services are only a small part of the structures, systems and behaviours required to make basic human needs. This principle of interconnectedness led him to research and to publish his book, Income Distribution and Social Change, which was known in our house as Alice and the Board of Inland Revenue. And it's it's about how the British upper and middle classes avoid taxation and hide money away in financial trusts and pension and life assurance schemes, thus creating welfare for themselves and depriving others of it book was dedicated to me, I think partly because I objected to the nightmare of proofreading its many dense appendices. A second aspect of my father's work I want to highlight is his dedication to facts. He never entered a debate or proposed an analysis without first collecting evidence. He didn't think that welfare interventions or outcomes could or should be simply invented or selected for political reasons. There needed to be clear thinking based on facts about policies and about their probable uh, and including unintended consequences. Non-fact-based theories, particularly those cherished by economists at LSE. My father was not fond of the economists at LSE. Uh, he thought that they engaged in theory with a completely flagrant disregard for actually what was going on in the real world. Thirdly, and lastly, there's a theme in Richard Titmuth's life which has been a source of considerable puzzlement to biographers and commentators, but it's a very significant one, accounting, I think, for much of the attraction his work still holds. I'm talking here about the great sense of moral concern that runs through it. Equality matters. Health services tailored to people's actual needs are more important than health services designed with administrative effectiveness in mind. A society that encourages altruistic behavior in its citizens, that makes charitable assumptions about human conduct, is to be valued far more than one which prioritizes self-interest. Here is an appropriate, I think appropriate quote from his famous 1959 Fabian lecture, which was called The Irresponsible Society. Quotation marks now. Economic growth, rising standards of living and a great outburst of scientific, technical and professional training all over the Western world has installed and strengthened governments wedded to inequality, secretness in administration and monopolistic privilege. More ominous still is the fact that these trends have been accompanied by a disenchantment with democracy. Well, I think those words bear thinking about today. Now, just to finish, I want to go back to those little red books that my mother recorded the Titmuss dinner parties in. Gender is something that could have been part of my father's legacy had he been more open than he was to this axis of inequality. The sociologist, Hilary Rose, who worked in Titmuss's department in the 1960s, observed that his conception, famous conception of the social division of welfare, was potentially open to an examination of how sex, race, and age, as well as class, can be structured, intentionally or unintentionally, by social policy. So the door was opened, a chink, to an analysis of gender, but no one. Not Titmuth, nor the Titmice, pushed it right open and walked through it. At the same time, and in line with the interconnectedness principle, it is unlikely that Richard Titmuss' work on welfare and social policy would have happened the way it did without the personal welfare services provided by his wife and my mother. There wasn't anything special about this. It was just the way families worked, and it's still the way many families work today. The informal micro level welfare states inhabits many homes has never been taken on board as a key part of any academic discipline or mainstream theory. It's an afterthought, it's always an afterthought, an add-on, something that people guiltily realize ought to have been there but wasn't. When I'm thinking about what to say tonight, I was looking at John's biography And I came across the remark he makes about Richard's relationship with Walter Adams, who was the controversial director of LSE from 1967 to 1974. During my father's last illness, Walter Adams and his wife were invited to dinner in Acton. But John says it's unclear whether this happened or not. Well, I've got news. It did happen. On Wednesday, the 20th of December, 1972, about three months before my father died, Sir Walter and Lady Adams visited Acton together with Brian abel Smith. And they were all served moussaka, peas, mashed potatoes, apricot compote and cream and something called Cadbury's cake. It was, I think, have been a sad occasion and perhaps a slightly indigestible one. But the world of social policy was at least partly made around that dinner table. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much um, for those really stimulating, fascinating talks. We now have time for some questions. So um, we'll open up the floor. If there are um, people online who would like to ask questions, please do enter via the Q&A feature at the top left of your screen, I believe, and I will try and take them in rounds. So at the floor, please put your hand up if you'd like to ask a question and please give your name and affiliation if you can um, and uh, wait for the mic to get you and have one here.
5: Bernard Casey here. Once of this place and of various other places. I wonder what Richard Titmuss might have said about this new concept about which everybody has been talking recently, which is effective altruism, because we hear it in relation to some of the discussion about open AI. We also hear about it in relation to people like, um, what's he called, Friedman Bank, the crypto man. Um, and. If you go to Oxford, people talk about it rather a lot. Would Titness have had a view about effective altruism as well? Thank you. Thank you.
0: Would anybody like to take that one? Joe, second you take guessing? That one. I think it's probably fun to take
1: that, Joe. Yes, I think Titness was probably in favour of effective altruism in, in the literal sense of that expression. The current vote for effective altruism uh, seems to be neither effective nor altruistic, which is partly why some of his proponents are serving time uh, at his majesty's, uh, his majesty's pleasure, or whatever the American equivalent is. Uh, effective altruism, without going into rant mode, uh, although Titus was capable of going into rant mode if you did the, the responsible society about eating and bankers and so on. Uh, it's, uh, kind of lots of very rich people trying to appease their consciences in some sort of way. So uh, I like to think that I'm the you know, Disagree. I don't think she would, but well, she might disagree. That uh, it was just he would have been justified with scathing yeah. about uh, so-called effective altruism. So. Yeah, I don't disagree.
0: Okay. <laughs> so, are there any other questions in the room?
4: Hi, uh, I'm, I'm Nick Timmins. Um, I'm a senior fellow at the of the Institute of Government, other things. Um, can I put something to the panel, right I once spent quite a long time talking to David Dyson, who you could argue was or was not a tit uh about Richard. And he suddenly said, but of course we failed. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, if you look at where things were when we were doing all this work in the 60s and 70s, since then, and there's more to go, obviously, but since then, there are considerable advances in gender equality, large advances in disability rights, improvements in racial equality but income equality has quite simply got worse so basically we failed i wonder what the panel think of that
0: so, so there have been major advances but income inequality has got a lot worse yes. um, and what would
4: uh, well yes because as uh, I, I, I said, said was that a know, failure? it's never been the center of attention it's always an add-on that's what it well but, in the 50s and 60s, you didn't speak about it in polite company. Um, and, you know, some of my disagreements with my father were when I joined the Women's Liberation Movement. He couldn't see the point in that at all. It's uh, marginally better now, but very marginal.
3: So my, my guess is that, uh, you know, in that kind of like, you know, articulating Townsend, that Townsend would agree right, with that statement, I think, and would agree agree with the statement that it had been a failure because because of that point I made about the application of the, the ideas in the political sphere had never followed them through in the kind of radical way that, that he would have proposed. Um, I mean, in some of the conversations that, that I've had in interviewing people um, about Townsend and his attitude to these things, um, I, I remember once posing the question of, uh, to someone of, uh, of whether a particular measure had been, would, would, had been enough that the government had, had done in terms of income inequality, and, and he said, "He said, 'Well, no. But was it? Was there anything that was ever enough for Townsend?'" Um, and I think that the, that Townsend probably would agree with that statement. And in, in terms of the reasons why, I imagine that he would suggest that it was because that the policy applications have been too timid. But I think in terms of being critical of Townsend, I've never quite understood how he saw change being implemented if you, if you weren't going to get involved with government. It just seems that there's an inherent tension with Townsend's attitudes, things there that that I can't square in terms of understanding what it is that, that he wanted. But he, he seems to have believed quite wholeheartedly that that it kind of wasn't his job to turn the ideas into into actual policy. It was just his idea to articulate what it was that you should do in a kind of broad sense. That's how I feel about it so far, I think, in terms of working in terms of.
2: Can I come in? I, I think Brian would also have agreed they, they haven't achieved income, haven't made much progress on that path towards income um, equality. But I think Brian Abel-Smith was very much a, a pragmatist, not a purist. He was quite willing to to be dirty in some of his approaches. He, he wasn't a modeler. Um, he very much wanted to, to take the facts, as Titmuss did. He was a great believer in having factual basis to policies, um, but he was quite prepared to do the deals um, in the back rooms of Whitehall to get things, you know, from green paper to white paper to legislation. I think that probably is the thing that separates him most clearly from, from Townsend. Um, and there's there's a great critique that Bob Pinker produced not long I think after Titmus died and he's critiquing Titmuss' lack of theoretical approach he said if if he'd only been prepared to do a bit more theory he would have, I'm quoting here it would have given a greater intellectual unity and perspective he felt that Titmus put forward a normative model of welfare that had an unambiguous conflict between aims and values of social policy and the dominant ethos of capitalism. And I would love to go back, actually, to look at some of the literature and explore whether that, that really is there. And they changed a lot. I think their views changed a lot over the course of you know, 15, 20 years as well. I think that's really important to remember and Titmuss did have flexibility he knew that it was a rapidly changing society he knew that there would always be new questions I think he would have embraced some of the new economic thinking that's come out you know, particularly people like Kate Raworth writing in the last five years You know, the donut economics approach I think they would have absolutely loved that and seen that as a way to push forward what they had started
0: Thank you I'm going to turn to our online audience now I've got some questions here the first one is, uh, again, thinking about what would, uh, what would Titmus have said. Um, so, Anthony Valian says, as top income tax rates were much higher and average house affordability much better in the 1960s than today, and growth higher, what would he advocate today? Uh.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if I can just go back to what Nick Timmons was saying. I, mean, I, th- I think what we need to recognise here is that um, Yes, there are issues around inequality, to say the least, but these are political failures. These are not, it's not because there's not enough papers being produced at the LSE or anywhere else that um, uh, we still have high levels of income inequality. And since you mentioned David Donison, I mean, I think when I spoke to him, you knew him infinitely better than I did, but one of his comments to me was that what he liked about Titus was he would always see the kind of unexpected angle but uh, Of course, you can come up with as many unexpected angles as you like, and you can go to dinner with Dick Crossman as often as you like, but if the politicians aren't prepared to put things into action, then, you know, it, it's kind of a dilemma, really, isn't it? How, how does one address that issue? And, and I think there's, much, there's huge kind of issues in the intellectual history of the last 50 years, which would suggest that... If these guys were swimming against the tide, and to some respect in the 1950s and 60s, then they really, are, really would be swimming against the tide. now. But my, my, my central point would be there's a political failure. It's not just, you know, the lack of theory. I mean, clearly there was an issue about theory, but then the kind of lack of theory is not the reason that we still have high levels of inequality, uh, but that, that's a thing me.
0: We have a comment rather than a question, so I'll read the comment and then I'll go on to the other question. Uh, From uh, Jean Gaffin, who is an LSE mature student, 1962 to 1966, the MSC Social Administration, 65 to 6. Um, And uh, Jean says, such a pleasure and a privilege to be taught and influenced by these great men. As a mature student, mother of a toddler, rare in those days, only Brian Abel Smith, in my four years at LSE, talked to me about how this might be difficult. That's a tribute to Brian Abel Smith for paying attention to that particular circumstances. And then we have a question from Priscilla Olsen um, from the SRI at UCL. So good to hear of social policy and sociology experts being widely listened to by the public and by policymakers. Do you agree that this is largely missing today, um, and do you have ideas on what might be done about this loss? So that's true. <laughs> I think that's partly what you were answering
4: um, before, John. But does anybody else
0: want to come in on this?
4: Priscilla is a colleague of mine, and she always asks relevant questions.
2: Well, I'd put the question back. Who should we be talking to? Because which are the affected politicians in the room that would actually understand some of the principles we would wish to articulate? I think we've seen in the COVID inquiry evidence in the last, you know, month... <laughs> That when you have um, expert views, and Titmars could be quite critical, couldn't
4: he, Anne? Experts. Oh, yeah. Yes. yeah. But he, I mean, you know, one of the things that I remember, and it comes out in what all of you have been saying, is, is, is the networking they were all involved in. Yeah. So they didn't operate in, just in an academic world. Um, they, were, they were very connected to the policy world, and they were connected by means of, you know, sociability. It wasn't just. You were on the same committee as this person, but you actually formed some kind of relationship with them. And, and that, was a, a, that was a way to influence policy. It was sometimes not the best way, but it was a way. And I don't know that that kind of networking, that kind of networking happens. The wrong kind of networking happens now.
2: I think also the fact that you know Labour, if you look at when Labour have been in government... And their natural affiliation, I think, you know, all three of them was with Labour governments. There were long periods when they just knew that they were not going to have that direct uh, relationship with with government ministers. So they looked for other ways to to do that and, uh, you know, the increasing frequency with which ministers change now, is it really worth putting the investment in? Yeah,
4: that's true. Mm And you
2: want to come
1: back re- oh, i was just going to say very re- quickly, re- quickly yeah, well i think it's interesting they, if one looks at the press coverage of timus townsend and uh, abel smith in their heyday they were getting routinely attacked by the daily telegraph or the spectator or something like that and one tends not to see that sort of thing now because there's in a way nothing to attack you know so. um
0: okay i would uh, we have i think a
4: question
5: a very brief question I I failed to understand the context of the position put earlier about we have failed. Listening to Professor Stewart and reading the references he was using, it seems to me that the Institute of Learning took Titmuss extremely seriously. uh, And it seemed to have cost most professions. It cost social security, it cost healthcare, it cost housing it cost everything which public money is spent or might be spent mm. and i think uh, the professor stewart's references made that point you can't say that all that intellectual fervor publications debates engagement with government was a failure and government had to take note of what was going on in the university um in a practical way which they hadn't done before so I'd have to have another discussion with the person that put the question now.
2: What I should have said earlier was all three of them had an an opportunity to become actively involved at Westminster. So there was a suggestion that they should have been given peerages and put into the House of Lords in 1968 in recognition of the policy development they'd done, particularly around pensions. And I think, and I may correct me if I'm wrong here, they decided that Peter Townsend would take a decision for all three of them, and Peter's view was that they should not become members of the House of Lords. But that would have been a a wonderful base, power base, from which they could then have had an ongoing influence, no matter who was in government.
4: Yeah, I would say that my father changed his mind in the last year of his life, and he wrote to whoever it was, trying to secure Peter and the House of Lords.
0: So I've got two questions online. So I'll just take those together. um, And then um, I think we'll be out of time. Oh, and and, uh, well, we have two quick ones in the room. So I'll just collect all four, and then you can pick which ones you want to answer. So I'll read the first one. While the mics are going there and there, I'll read out these questions. So one is from Martin Powell, which concept or output from the three scholars would have received the best ref grading in terms of rigor, originality, and um, impact? Um, And uh, then from Virginia Wagstaff says, nobody has said much about Titmus as a teacher of students. I was a DSA student 1965 to 67 and still remember his seminars were outstanding. Any comments? So I hope you're taking note of these questions. And then there was one over here. Um, Just briefly, uh, do you feel that Peter Townsend was so against institutionalising
2: themselves because he, on some level, felt that he wouldn't be accepted given his background and how, how it differed to uh, Titmuss and
4: A. Smith.
5: David Pusher, This meeting is hosted by LSE Health and the Department of Social Policy. Do the, the speakers think that it would be true to the legacy of Richard Titmus for the separation of health and uh, from social policy. Uh, one of the features of the work of all three, I think, is that they took a much broader view than, than, than many and, and certainly saw the importance of health and disability in relation to social policy and social policies in relation to health. So that is this separation true to the legacy of Richard Titus?
0: No. So, I will leave you to pick whichever of those you would like to answer. Who would like to pick up on one of those?
4: Well, I would just say no. They would not have approved. It wouldn't make any sense alone. And in relation to the question about, was it a question about which work of fitnesses would We'd have got do. the best weight? Well, way? I think the gift relationship for impact but not rigour. Uh, I think income distribution and social change for rigour and not impact, and particularly the proofreading. <laughs>
3: Um, So to answer the specifically Peter Townsend question, I think that institutionalisation and things like that are all relative because you can't say looking at his career that that he didn't become a man of the establishment in many ways. He was a professor at at, what became one of the country's leading social science institutions and that that, that was an expression of his own personality in lots of ways. But what's also true, I think, is that of the, the, the three of them, he was the one who both felt and perceived that he was the closest to working-class people and was able to articulate and and talk talk about them and for them in ways that the others couldn't. And you see, you see that particularly in, in his earlier work and the work on... on on old people in in particular, and articulating those experiences, I think. And so to tie that down on, I certainly think that in terms of most kind of impactful work, I think The Last Refuge is probably the work of his that I think is the most impactful in that sense, in terms of policy and ideas, and opening people's ideas to certain things.
1: Yeah, just on terms as a teacher, there was a document circulated at the LSE in the early 1960s called The Bogdan of Teaching. And Titmus and Abel Smith took quite considerable exception to this because they thought that their job as university teachers was to uh, teach people. And um, kind of, the whole kind of notion, and of course this is the ref culture, the REE e. e. culture, early doors kind of thing. Um, the whole idea that teaching was important, Abel Smith and, and Titmus went ballistic about. So. Yes, there are. Uh, Some of I think, Abel Smith as yes. well were exceptional
2: teachers. Yeah, I mean, Brian absolutely loved teaching and he'd quite often time his flights coming back in and he'd literally come straight from Heathrow into the lecture theatre and he'd be buzzing with what he'd just been observing in these low-middle-income countries. Um, quite often he'd teach lying down on the desk because he had a bad back. Um, he'd smoke throughout, you know, completely um, unacceptable these days. Um, coming back to the ref. Question: I think gift relationship probably for Titmus and the poor and the poorest for which was the joint Townsend and Abel Smith book. Um, I use that for teaching as as a way of demonstrating sort of impact and how you can get it and how you, how they could have done it slightly better or how they would have done it differently now.
0: Well, we're out of time now. Uh, Thank you very much for for getting through all the questions there that you were put. But we do have book signings mentioned. So uh, Sally and John will be signing books here, but you can purchase them in the lobby. It's been great to have you all with us, both those online and those of you in the room. And I'm very uh, appreciative for all our speakers. So thank you very much uh, to Anne, to Chris, to Sally and to John for a very um, stimulating evening this evening. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.